Hi, and welcome to Hell of Presidents. This is a bonus episode on the Civil War. Uh, we are joined today by Matt Carp. He's an associate professor at Princeton, specializing on the Civil War. Uh, for this, like most of our bonuses, I'm going to kind of be taking a backseat and let Matt and Matt really uh, go at it. So uh, let's let's get nerdy. Let's talk generals. Let's let's talk battles and gods. Yeah, and gods, gods, gods and generals. generals. All yeah. those guys. Want to jump in? So let's start before the, the war. The uh, uh, with the really one of those his roads not taken that I, I, I'm always fixated on in American history that, that sort of sets up the coming conflict. And it is the absolute freak event of the uh, rise of John Tyler to the presidency after the death of William Henry Harrison. Because uh, Harrison becomes president. Uh, after the uh, panic of 37 and sort of the discrediting of the Jackson Van Buren uh, democracy uh, with Whig majorities in the House and Senate and with a, a real mandate to try uh, to assert the Whig program. It's their time to shine. Of late, let's, let's pull the bridle a bit on this Westward expansion. Let's not make Westward expansion the, the, the solution to all of our crises in this country. Let's do a little uh, building. How about, how about a little infrastructure? How about we actually take the land we have and we develop it with our uh, resources? But before they can even try to do it, William Henry Harrison takes a, sh a sip of water from the shit lagoon, uh, <laughs> dies, uh, and to the presidency arises someone who was on the ticket uh, as a uh, sop to the anti-Jacksonians of the South who were alienated uh, from the democracy by the nullification crisis, but who had absolutely no commitment to any of the Whig uh, policies and then spent his entire term uh, denying the Whigs any ability to, to assert power and, and then trying to form his own third party uh, on sectional pro-slavery bounds. Uh, to me, that's like just uh, one of those instances where you see, you know, the machinery of history and then you just see the the uh, the, the the prank show of history that's happening <laughs> without us even aware of it, where this guy who, you know, could have been Henry Clay if he'd been a little less of a bitch about being passed over for the nomination. <laughs> the guy who actually was sort of the visionary behind the Whig Party is instead replaced by this uh, this kind of grotesque uh, avatar of Southern planter society. Yeah, but without doubt, the most pro-slavery president uh, the United States has ever had. But the funny thing about Tyler is, yeah, you could look at him as this kind of essentially comic character, right? You know, his accidency, uh, who um, was sort of widely mocked even at the time and sort of reviled by virtually all sides because the, the Democrats didn't really want a piece of Tyler either, even though he tried to flirt with them. And he had his, you know, he had, I think, basically Henry Wise, the later governor of Virginia, was like one of his like four body men in Congress. They were called the corporal's guard, <laughs> um, just mockingly to be like this. This guy has no support. And even though he's the sitting president, you know, with all of the executive power uh, at, at his disposal and, and a significant one who, you know, forced, you know, the Henry Clay allied cabinet to basically quit after uh, a couple months in office, um, you know, drove everyone else out of Washington. But he, he was able to turn that patronage, that power of patronage, that power of kind of um, uh, just administrative heft into 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 very almost nothing legislatively. And yet. So so, yeah, he's a joke and a loser, but he's also 
one of the most significant presidents we had because he engineered the annexation of Texas. And he, uh, in a way that William Henry Harrison, I don't think would have, or President Henry Clay, I don't think would have in the same way. And essentially through foreign policy, the one place where he was, I won't say unfettered because he he got like half of his diplomatic appointments kept getting rejected just out of spite. <laughs> but he was still able through, you know, his foreign policy apparatus led by Secretary of State Abel Upshur, who was another one of these like Virginia hardline, you know, Calhounite kind of reptiles who really put the pieces in motion uh, diplomatically with the Republic of Texas to bring Texas into the union. And, you know, his treaty failed Congress in 44, but he Again, partly due to his own, you know, ineptitude and his own kind of unpopularity. But even as a lame duck then, after Polk had been elected in 44, Tyler pushed all his chips in and pushed a joint resolution through Congress, having negotiated through now his Secretary of State Calhoun after Upshur bit it and the <laughs> Princeton incident. Yeah. After Upshur <laughs> yes. got, got literally blown up. I yeah, don't think pr- we mentioned that in the main no, series. It's one they of the were funniest on, incidents. Oh, yeah, that is a good one. In American uh, history. They, they were all on a big boat in the Potomac, a new boat for the Navy, and the giant gun called the Peacemaker. They were shooting it off. It's kind of like that thing that I mentioned from the beginning of the Civil War. Yeah. Where, uh, well, the only the people first- killed during the Sumter bombing were the guys uh, <laughs> when the when the artillery piece blew up during the salute yes during the salute to the flag at the end <laughs> yeah. of a pile of cartridges yeah they were sh- shooting off this big gun the peacemaker and it blew up and murdered. i them. mean it was part of tyler's like not totally joking plan to sort of an upshur who had previously been secretary of the navy not totally joking plan to like build up the u.s navy and show off their new tech i mean i did and anal- i used to analogize it when, when i was in grad school to like imagine the bush cabinet all gathering to like <laughs> shoot off the newest like icbm or whatever and then like you know and everyone's kind of hammered on this boat. John Tyler himself, literally, uh, whose wife had died in office, uh, is macking the wealthy, the 21-year-old or something, heiress of a wealthy New York merchant family who he later married, um, you know, producing... Uh, right, that's why there are, like, his grandkids exactly. just died. Yeah. Exactly, because his he he gave, he fathered a child at 70 and then that child fathered another child at 70. So anyway, Tyler mercifully, uh, for his descendants still living, uh, was beloved low uh trying to like lay game on on this woman who was a See, quarter day game is very important don't let people tell yes. you day game is not important it can save your life yeah and and but a lot of the other guys um you know i'm guessing you know this was probably a bit of a sausage fest a lot of the other guys to watch <laughs> seeing the guns go off they're like all right um, including um, Upshur's replacement as Secretary of the Navy, uh, Thomas Gilmer, a couple other sort of important, you know, sort of uh, this guy, Beverly Kennan, who is a Navy, Naval commander, Virgil Maxey, who is like Calhoun's, one of Calhoun's um, go-to guys, all these sort of insiders, you know, the the, the pearls and the Wolfowitzes yeah. of this world <laughs> were all up there, you know, or maybe not them, but like whoever, who, who was described as Li- Scooter Libby's Libby, you know, or <laughs> oh. Libby was Cheney's Cheney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was there somebody who was Libby's Libby? Yeah. Yeah. There were anyway, Calhoun's Calhoun. A, was a up lot there. of undersecretaries. <laughs> yes, exactly. And those guys and like like nine of them just got blown up. <laughs> and because they were drunkenly like, oh, we've shot off the gun. Let's shoot off the gun one more time. It literally was. They'd done the demonstration and they'd cut the ribbon and then or whatever. And then and then they 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 were like, let's do it one more time. Anyway, so Upshur gets blown up. Um Calhoun comes in and but Calhoun and Tyler together. 
executed, basically put the pieces in motion such that Texas was going to be annexed no matter what. Yeah. They they kind of cajoled and coaxed Congress to pass a joint resolution to say, to make this basically a fait accompli before Polk came in. And Polk didn't have a problem with it anyway, obviously. No. So he was right. going to do it already. But Tyler actually made that happen. And the annexation of Texas, proximate event to right. the division of the Union. Yeah, mm-hmm. like at that point, like the whole Whig project as an alternative uh, to just the westward expansion and, and the... Uh, the sectional crisis that was always exacerbated by Western expansion, that's off the table. And the, the entire uh, antebellum period from that point on is defined politically by these questions of expansion, of where slavery is going to be. Uh, and then, of course, that means that the Whigs are going to be a short-term uh, project. They're going to start breaking up pretty quickly. Uh, we only really get one Whig president, Will- Millard Fillmore, mm-hmm. the Silver Gray. Uh, I love the fact that the also Silver Gray... Also an Grays, accident. Yes, another accident. Who his faction in New York, the Silver Grays, literally named after the really cool hair of one of his supporters <laughs> uh, in the New York Whig Party. <laughs> uh, but he's all we get uh, in before uh, the Whigs start breaking up, and then in the in the wake of that, the, the that party breaking up under its uh, contradictions emerges this new force. Finally, after uh, abortive attempts before, in the form of uh, the Liberty Party and the Free Soil Party, a explicitly uh, a party explicitly uh, organized around the sectional interest of the North and the restraint of uh, the expansion of slavery, the Republican Party. So what are the forces that come together to make that party happen? Yeah. So that's a big jump, but it's the crucial one. I mean, that's the moment. Um, if, if Texas, I do think Texas sets these events in motion right. such that clearly the war with Mexico was basically inevitable as everybody, uh, you know, at the time recognized in both parties, yeah, even, even Andrew Jackson didn't want to do it. it. Yeah. Even yeah. Andrew fucking Jackson <laughs> didn't want to take Texas in the thirties because yeah. he was like, I don't want to deal with this with, with, a, with a war with Mexico right now. But anyway, so, so that was more or less inevitable. Therefore these questions about the future of slavery in the West were more or less inevitable. Something like the, the crisis of 1850 was basically inevitable. And then, um, the ongoing kind of, you know, they, they, they think they solved things in 1850 with this big compromise mm-hmm. where everybody in D.C., um, you know, after after just years of gridlock, um, you know, finally, Stephen Douglas steps up where Henry Clay failed, you know, chops up these compromise measures, gets a bill through uh, bringing Texas in as a free state, but setting up the Fugitive Slave Act in the north, uh, mm-hmm. abolishing slave trade, but not slavery in Washington, D.C., a bunch of other things get through. They supposedly they're all celebrating the final solution uh, <laughs> ha, ha. Uh, it, you know it, it basically it was from the yeah. abolitionist perspective it was like they're celebrating the fucking fugitive slave act you yeah. know uh, I think Owen Lovejoy had a great line like when Millard Fillmore signed that bill uh, he should have received an electric shock sending him straight to hell or something <laughs> like that from when he when he sort of when he sent the telegram announcing it or something but yeah but it's an unstable it's a deeply unstable settlement because hello, there's going to be another crisis the next time a state mm-hmm. tries to make it into the Union uh, from this sort of like vast, undetermined West. And slaveholders are having seized the sort of, a, a, you know, almost a political offensive um, after the war with Mexico, after Texas, after the war with Mexico, are pressing their claims in the early 1850s. And so the, the proximate event is the Kansas-Nebraska Act, right? Mm-hmm. Where they basically, the group of kind of Southern power players who lived in this infamous house in Washington, D.C. called the F Street Mess. A b- bunch of these guys who are mostly sort of forgotten, but they were big swinging dicks in D.C. in the 1850s. Chairman of the of the Foreign Affairs Committee, the Judiciary Committee, et cetera. James Mason, Robert Hunter of Virginia. These guys basically give Douglas his marching orders that if you're going to get 
this Kansas, if you're going to organize Nebraska as a territory, you're going to get your railroad bill through, you're going to get your railroad bill to go through Nebraska to Chicago. You need to annul the Missouri Compromise. You need to open up the possibility, allow the inhabitants of this territory to determine for themselves whether slavery uh, is to exist. They, they didn't say it in that in so many words. That's how Douglas glossed it. But basically what they said is you need to you need to specifically put into this bill language annulling the Missouri Compromise, which had, you know, if you remember high school, had blocked the possibility of slavery expanding above that 3630 line, which is like the bottom of Missouri, which mm-hmm. really didn't give slavery much room. Yeah. Uh, whereas, you know, you, you cut that thing off in 54, which is what Douglas then proceeded to do. And the Democratic Party got behind him, um, Southerners and m- a good portion of the Northern dem- Democracy. You suddenly you have the whole Louisiana Purchase, you have the whole mm-hmm. Great Plains, you have essentially the whole continental West is up for grabs. Uh, and this is overreach. I mean, I think there's no question. And I want to talk a lot about, you know, my heroic Republicans and the political <laughs> revolution and how they were all, you know, good Bernie Sanders is and everything. And they <laughs> they did what we have failed to do. Um, and I basically still believe that. And I'm writing a book about it. But there's no question that the proximate event is this overreach, is this Southern bullying and kind of manipulating of Stephen Douglas in order to sort of put that coalition, get that coalition through the house to, to get his railroad bill combination of Stephen Douglas's kind of individual ambition and, you know, to, to sort of be the heroic, you know, continentalist and, you know, sort of own the railroad for Chicago and Southern pro-slavery hardlinism. That's the thing that does it, that, that, that actually sets a firestorm through the North. So just to hone in on that point really quickly, because, you know, Matt and I have, trying to be spooling out how a lot of these politicians, the president are, you know, kind of products of their material circumstance. And you're just describing that, you know, that moment, the Kansas Nebraska act is overreach. I guess my question there is, do you think that there was a way to go for the Southerners that wasn't that kind of overreach? Like were those guys just individually fucking up and pushing too far too fast and not expecting the consequences or was, the way we've described the southern economy, it like basically has to move in that expand direction. or die, yeah. Yeah. expand or die. Exactly. Yeah, I mean that's Genovese's. That's the classic interpretation of southern political economy. Mm-hmm. I would add a bit more nuance because if you look at the sort of this the the basically like the cotton acreage in the South, antebellum, postbellum, there was a fuck ton more acreage that was under cultivation mm-hmm. under by sharecropping in the late nineteenth century that was had not been cultivated in the antebellum period. So to the extent that it did need to expand or die, it could have still expanded internally, at least theoretically, I think from a technical perspective. Right. But ideologically, no. And politically, like they needed to be in the determining position in Washington. They needed to be writing the laws of the continent as it was expanding, yes. which they were very terrified they were going to lose because they the population was on the north side. The, like the, the, If we we're going to have democratic institutions, they were going to be... Uh, overwhelmed by people who had no investment in slavery. Yeah, the population bomb had gone off and they were playing a weekend. They'd already lost Congress and they overplayed it. Was that specifically? I, I don't want to say I don't. Yeah, I agree that, you know, to be to be a little bit more materialist than than I often am. But, you know, would like to be I'd like to be more. But I keep getting hung up on uh, the cool stories. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I don't believe that like Robert Mercer, Tolliver Hunter, you know, Virginia committee chairman in the Senate, if he had like had a different thought that Tuesday 
today that, you know, the Kansas Nebraska Act wouldn't have passed. Mm-hmm. He is the spokesman of his class. Right. So every his opinion about the settlement of Kansas and the status of slavery, the future of slavery in the in the Great Plains and the 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 need for the Missouri Compromise to be revised, or as they put it, the Compromise of 1850 had superseded the Missouri Compromise, so there was no need for it anymore. Mm-hmm. And in essence, the need for slavery to have some fighting chance in the expansion of the West, that's a common position that Southerners all feel deeply from you know their reading of slavery the, the needs of the slave economy but i think more specifically their their reading as matt says of the politics mm-hmm. and they 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 were not prepared ideologically to settle for second rate regional rule this had been a ruling class that had you know dominated in one form or another the american republic from the time that it you know that that republic was born right. um in terms of you know owning the white house owning the supreme court uh, owning the senate and even as they sort of became more militantly pro-slavery, they were no less attached to, you know, uh, to ruling and um, their mastery of, you know, U.S. foreign policy, et cetera, like that I've written about, like the military, the Navy, westward expansions in Texas and elsewhere. They were not willing to just be like, OK, we're going to pass the ball over to this <laughs> anti-slavery north, go back to our plantations and just kind of chill there. We'll let the uh, med sills handle it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that was that was not conceivable for them. So mm-hmm. I don't I think when I say overreach, I mean. I mean, I don't mean like a kind of a miscalculation on the part of a handful of leaders. It's more just that they were sort of almost uh, ideologically driven to do this. Yeah. And what they did in doing so was awaken a northern public, which had been pretty much generally willing to uh, let the baby have their bottle when it came to slavery. But as their demands became more and more outrageous from their point of view, and as the the real uh, question of like, what what is it what's their long-term goal here like what is the destiny of like a small farmer uh who doesn't have uh uh, slaves uh or or a mechanic like what is their destiny in a country that is dominated by this this form of labor and this this political economy uh that is now uh asserting this minoritarian rule over the, the the destiny of the continent and so uh that's where the republican party gets finally like the wind in the sails of anti-slavery from the popular perspective, like like not just it's not just for abolitionist nerds in, in Boston anymore right. to to organize your politics against slavery specifically. Yeah. You know, and, and some of this stuff had been honed in, you know, the previous battles before 1850, et cetera. But there's a huge break in 54 and there's a moment. And actually, this is I do think this is another, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to write about this, but I do think that this is a the way that we often get this account is. Okay, you know, it's always slaveholders kind of aggressively acting and everybody else reacting. Mm -hmm. And I think this hits a funny bone in the right way of a kind of contemporary discourse where we're accustomed in the kind of liberal media to always kind of, um, you know, depict the the right wing is acting and everybody else is kind of passively just trying to get along or kind of being born into the current of this this like, you know, crazy, uh, you know, agentic right wing that Mm -hmm. that kind of that that actually is 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 calling the tune. And that's I don't that's not what happened in the 1850s. It's really that's not the the no question that the Southerners overreached and that they had, you know, they were ideologically driven to rule driven to sort of remain in power even as a minority, which is which is a you know, a, a difficult and maybe untenable position in the long run. But what actually happened was the radical left wing of the anti-slavery movement in Congress, you know, people like Salmon Chase and Joshua Giddings and Charles Sumner jumped on this moment, propagandized the fuck out of it and in, in, in response to Kansas, Nebraska, and basically made the new common sense in the North be turned it from, OK, we've got to divide the country up and preserve the Missouri Compromise 
which is itself, uh, you know, slavery was still going to be legal in New Mexico, according to the Missouri Compromise. There, mm-hmm. You know, there, there's absolute possibility of enslaved people working mines in Mexico and even Utah. So this is not unimaginable, either to contemporaries or looking back. But the anti-slavery movement released this in January 1854, even before this bill passes, this um, the appeal of the, unde- of the independent Democrats, which is like one of the propaganda masterworks of American history, where they, you know, savaged the betrayal of the Missouri Compromise, but not only speaking to kind of northern outrage that, you know, the whole all that we had just, you know, we just resolved this four years ago. And now you're, you know, you're throwing it back. Uh, you're throwing everything up in the air again on your own terms, mm-hmm. which I do think there was a bit of like, you just welched on this deal, guys. <laughs> but what they did was they they also they basically changed the common sense over the next year or two, not just with this document, but with all sorts of other anti-slavery, um, you know, political activity to uh, from, OK, res- restore the Missouri Compromise, which is what a lot of the kind of weenie-ish Whigs who also got on board with this movement were saying. But actually, no new slave states, no new slave territory, no further expansion of slavery, period, dot. And 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 that that was not the baseline position that an American major American political party had ever held before. That was a position that is far more um, dangerous and terrifying to not just to Southern slave lords, but to um, all sorts of kind of border state moderates and even Northern Democrats who fear, um, you know, its consequences for the union, which depends on the toleration of slavery's trickling out some way into the West. And so, um, this is, this is a, this is a real change between 54 and 56, which is the first Republican election where that doctrine becomes you know, installed in a sense through the in the in the through the John C. Fremont campaign as the kind of basic raison d'etre of the Republican Party that um, you know there will be no slave expansion um, and that slavery itself, therefore, you know, slavery itself can be you know openly derided as a relic of barbarism, as mm-hmm. they put it. That's that's a revolution. You know, even before Lincoln wins, it's it's almost in it's almost happening in the 1850s to say, wait a minute, we have a major party that can attract not just as Matt was saying, not just nerds in in, in New England, but average workaday northern farmers, mechanics, laborers, timbermen in Michigan and wheelwrights in Pennsylvania and whatever the fuck people did in the 1850s, you know, uh, people uh, Coopers, barrel makers. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Name, name some more shit. But but Wainwrights, that's a good one. <laughs> But I think the thing is, I mean there, there's a great line that actually is going to be the t- I'm I'm just going to keep hyping the fuck out of this book which I haven't written yet. But um the, the is going to be the title of this thing by a woman born to free African American parents outside Philadelphia, this woman, Marianne Shad Carey, who is like an early sort of black woman abolitionist. She helped, you know, she lived in Pennsylvania during the 1840s, but moved to Canada after the Fugitive Slave Act and started a newspaper in Canada, kind of commenting on American affairs. In general, she's not sympathetic to the kind of you know, weak need, moderate anti-slavery politics in the United States. She's pro-Britain. She's one of these, you know, sort of, you know, uh, as Gerald Horn has called them, quote unquote, Negro comrades of the crown who's kind of <laughs> celebrating Canada as the true home for freedom. I mean, in, in fairness, they had a good argument in 1850 compared to the United States, et cetera. But she has an amazing line in the election of 1856 where she says, basically, the situation in Kansas and Nebraska and the emergence of the Republican Party has converted, uh, has changed the situation from thousands of abolitionists 
on grounds of humanity to millions of abolitionists on grounds of necessity. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is the key transformation in American politics. Millions of, you know, to go from thousands to millions uh, and to go and to go to a situation where instead of a kind of, you know, vague empathy for the plight of the, the enslaved to a, a, a kind of a militant sense of the necessity of curtailing and in fact, you know, curtailing slavery's expansion and even more overthrowing the slave power. And that's what happens in rolling 56. back their political power. Yes. As part of. Yeah. Yes. Speaking of militancy, then that early Republican Party has uh, at its sort of activist core, uh, this group of young dudes who are ready and willing to uh, throw down in public, <laughs> uh, are, w are willing to do mass politics in a way that really hadn't been done yet before, uh, called the Wide Awakes. Uh, uh, let's hear about those guys. Yeah, I mean, they're still, I think, understudied. I think they deserve, like, multiple books. Right now, yeah. all we have is, um, you know, colorful accounts in, um, you know, that they do show up in most kind of general accounts of the election of 1860. And one really good article by a guy named John Grinspan in the Journal of American History that kind of where he went into, you know, sociologically went into like a wide awake lodge in Connecticut and like found who these guys were. You know, primarily they were um, they were working class. They were clerks and sort of uh, wage workers in 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 at, at least insofar as he's been studied. But we need a more comprehensive look at, at this group, I think, because. Basically, they didn't exist in 56. So the 56 election, um, you know, Republicans get millions of votes as uh, over a million votes, as uh, Shad Carey says, uh, essentially proclaiming slavery barbaric, which is shocking and appalling and transformative for the American uh, political system. But it's 60 is, is when, you know, is winning time. And and that's when uh, it's in Lincoln's election in, in the in the in the in that campaign, having had four years of kind of ongoing agitation, um, almost no resolute progress toward resolving the essential crisis about the future of slavery. Um, the Republicans are ready. And sometimes this is depicted. What's funny is you'll sometimes hear a little maybe this is in the weeds, but, you know, historiographically, people will sometimes describe 1860 as like Republicans moderating their demands from the Fremont campaign because they took out that line about relic of barbarism mm -hmm. in the platform. Um, to me, this is completely misses the point because it's true, the platform, and, and they also larded up the platform with a bunch of stuff about homesteads and, you know, stuff that doesn't involve the moral condemnation of slavery. But this is mass politics. Mm -hmm. What they're actually doing, uh, for one, if you look at the rhetoric, they do not step off on their assault on slavery rhetorically uh, in 1860. And two, even if that one bit escapes the platform, connecting this struggle to the possibility of homesteads in the West to infrastructure improvements. Yes, some of it is the old Whig program, but it's not just the Whig program of sort of facilitating, um, you know, the expansion of business. In part, it is, but it's also, I mean, my read of the of a lot of the 18th, what unifies the Democratic plat, the Republican platform, 1860, the Homestead Act is not a Whig measure. You know, that yeah. was the thing that Whigs hated. They didn't want to send people west. Um, it's a what what unifies the Republican platform is it, it is a free labor platform. It's a platform that's designed to connect anti-slavery to the material interests of mm -hmm. essentially, you know, northern workers and farmers and workers by giving them land, by doing tariffs to kind of protect uh, industrial wages is a big part of Republican politics at this point. Uh, and the way that that campaign unfolds, it's not a moderation. It's a it's a militarization, almost literally, where you have these young dudes uh, in places. What's interesting about the White Awakes, the greatest hotspots for the White Awakes weren't uh, Republican hotspots. So like Vermont, which is a super hard 
Republican, like 70% Lincoln voting state, hardly had any wide awakes. Where the wide awakes came out to play is where uh, the Democrats were strong. Right. So it's really is the true kind of hard boys who wanted to mix it up with the Douglasites and with the doe faces in places like, you know, Connecticut, New York, Indiana, uh, Illinois, um, often in cities uh, or near cities where you had a substantial Democratic population. And you had, uh, yes, there were nativist overtones in this in some cases because the ethnic class was the working class was so divided on these ethnic lines mm-hmm. where there weren't that many um, Kelly Green Irish brigades of wide awakes. <laughs> unfortunately, there were some black wide awakes. I, I haven't seen the Irish wide awake uh, detachment yet, um, but I don't think primarily my read on who they were was it was not primarily an ethnic war of all against all because they were attached to the Republican platform. And if you read the newspapers depicting these big wide awake marches where you have all these young guys wearing these and yeah just talk about what they look like they wore these um you know these like greasy oil capes they carried these lanterns they wore these like hats they had these like sort of you know they had this kind of you know i don't know would you call it a steampunk aesthetic it was almost pre <laughs> it was kind of gothic it's more like washington irving yeah. it's more sleepy hollow in, in the way i look at it because it's like a kind of an older becloaked kind of creature of the night and they would like they would like knock they they would often do these like torchlight parades like late at night or even you know even into midnight mm-hmm. um and it is this it is a lot of bro energy like fizzing kind of angry young male energy um but it's if you look at what the plat the placards that they're holding you know which is the best thing that as far as i know in absence of a, of a deeper sociological study that hasn't been undertaken yet they're talking about the issues of the day. They're talking about the slave power. They're talking about the expansion of slavery to the West. And they're talking about um, free labor, free free labor, free homes, free soil. So this is a, um, this is, and to me, and they're clashing with, you know, democratic brigades and so on in different places. There are fistfights and various ruckuses. This is, exemplifies the way in which this politics has gotten more intense, more militant, more radical rather than less so. But that does not extend presumably to, the nominee who was chosen sort of not as anyone's uh, as the assumed first choice uh, uh, when they had the Chicago convention uh, due to the fact that he was not associated with the leading edge of confrontational uh, language within the Republican Party. Uh, That is what at the end doomed Seward's uh, nomination, right? That's true. Yeah. Seward was the most William Seward in New York was the most important mm-hmm. Republican politician of the fifties. You know, his conversion to the Republican party, he had been a, a, a high level Whig. He had had the ear of, you know, um, of Zachary Taylor, actually, you know, he actually was putting some of the steel in Taylor's spine, you know, when Taylor was rejecting, um, you know, the fugitive slave act and the, and the, you know, expansion of slavery to the West in 1850, then Taylor dies and Seward has no influence over his rival, faction yeah exactly yeah. it's like Thurlow weed seward no yeah. thank you <laughs> yeah yeah but anyway when seward in 55 comes out as a republican and gives this big speech he you know it really shifts the balance of power in the largest state in the union in the north mm-hmm. in new york and um and seward in the 50s was a radical i mean i've spent a lot of time reading his stuff his speeches are pretty dope i have to say if you look at if you read him in the 50s you know his he was maybe the most important republican in basically doing anti-slavery class politics in a sense at least 
populism, you know, at least in, at least rhetorically, you know, his labeling the, the, the basically the slaveholding class as a, a privileged class, a property class, you know, really, he's the most consistent more than, you know, definitely more than Lincoln, more even than the sort of more moralistic anti-slavery folks like Sumner. Um, Seward really captures that fusion of the kind of moral and the material where he is, you know, he he shreds the kind of the, the slave powers aristocratic presumptions. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, uh, and he talks about uh, as the 50s go on, you know, the you know, he wants to do, he, you know, various procedural radicalism things like, you know, reforming the Supreme Court and reorganizing it after Dred Scott. Mm-hmm. He talks about the irrepressible crisis in 1858. And yeah, he's seen as too hot to handle, which is funny because once he actually comes into power, yeah, he absolutely. ends up being a, a total snake, yeah. uh, basically, <laughs> who doesn't want to fight the war. So we're, we're goddamn lucky that the moderates maneuvered him yeah. out of their way at the convention in 60. I will say, though. I don't think that Lincoln, Lincoln, the moderate goes too far, too, because Mm -hmm. if you look at people in Illinois who knew him, I think he was that way in the 40s and 50s. But if you look at someone like Owen Lovejoy, who was as hot as an elected republic, as an elected anti-slavery official was in the late 50s, he had faith in Lincoln. If you look at Lincoln's law partner, his 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 best buddy, William Herndon, who corresponded with Sumner a lot and Theodore Parker and other and Wendell Phillips and other people like that. He was like, Lincoln gets it. Uh, Lincoln hates fucking slavery and there 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 was a way in which lincoln's um you know and that i think that comes out in my reading of the lincoln douglas debates too so i don't think that lincoln coming in as somebody who's like uh actually prepared to compromise is uh, i'm not surprised that he didn't actually then right, choose yeah. to compromise he basically was cagier than Seward, yeah. and that was the long that was that's just good strategy that's just like reading the moment more because yeah, Seward essentially had uh, burned through his his uh, viability before he got there, uh, because at that point, there I guess they did really think that they could take power, and the South would just say like, "All right, fair enough, you won." <laughs> yeah, is- you won. They they needed you know they needed Illinois, they needed Pennsylvania, and yeah. so you know Lincoln was the best bet, and they thought, um, yeah, they really did think that the South was going to knuckle under. They thought that they were you know a bunch of pussies, yeah. you know. And I guess it <laughs> well, just, that's the thing. Both sides yeah. thought that or the other. Yeah. They thought, yeah. When it comes down to yeah. it, they are, don't have the sand to do what's going to need to be done. Yeah, they'll take that. What was it? Uh, I, I think was it? Uh, I can't remember which Republican politician was like. You know, they'll all walk out of Congress, take one drink, and walk back in. Yeah. And you know, because they, they, they there had been all sorts of these threats and wolf cryings that had been. They've been talking about seceding basically constantly since the, the country <laughs> yeah. started. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I mean, it is a reminder, though, that like, I mean, and, and I can't imagine like a 18, you know, a, a sort of 1860, like a November 1860 Chapo podcast where you guys are all just sitting there just like shredding the idea, the idea that these like namby pamby Southern <laughs> slave lords would ever actually have the stones to try to, to, take to, their to, ball to bleed leave. and yeah. die yeah. for their ideas. He'd be like, oh, come on. You just got owned. Admit it. Ha ha ha. Yeah. And I mean, I probably would have had that view, yeah. too. Just well, looking back, yeah. that's what most people felt. Yeah. Well, and part of it is because both sides, due to the, the assumption that the other side didn't have it. Uh, they thought, well, we'll secede, and even if they put up a fight, they won't have the the sand to, to stick with it right. to do what's necessary. They'll will eventually find that it's easier to let us go, but because it hadn't happened before, no one really the mass violence of the kind that was unleashed by the Civil War in the American continent. It has a momentum of its own that uh, that just annihilates all of your assumptions and rebuilds your understanding of the situation as it's happening, and before you know it. 
Uh, you got guys who said before the war, like, I'll drink all the blood that is shed and mm-hmm. all that are just abs- are are now accepting these massive, unprecedented casualties as 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 worth it in a way that if they knew that was going to happen, they probably would have changed their calculus. Remorseless revolutionary struggle, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta love it. Gotta love it. Should we then get into the war itself a little bit as this has been a really nice preamble of the antebellum period that I think helps clarify a lot of the stuff that we went over in the show. Um, I don't know. How do you guys want to talk about the, the course of the war? I mean, I guess maybe one thing that has interest me is like maybe good ways to set things up is the balance of military power at the beginning of the of the war or, or kind of how both sides were looking at each other going in from not just an ideological perspective as we've been talking about or whether or not as matt said they had the sand but whether how it looked like just even fighting against each other there is like the u.s military is 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 the U.S. state is 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 still incredibly weak at this point, largely because it had been harnessed its its ability to you know actually develop its capabilities had been harnessed by its uh, connection to this Jeffersonian you know uh, tradition from the South that was prohibiting uh, state development, and it really was the secession of the South that allows the incredibly rapid expansion of the state to meet the challenge. Right, like you have for the first time a national currency. Uh, backed by just this, the the uh, word of the government, essentially, uh, in the form of the greenback. Uh, and you get this unprecedented uh, expansion of the state in order to, to meet the moment. But it's starting almost from zero. Yeah, I mean, it is funny. This is maybe getting ahead of ourselves, but there is almost like a hyperdrive into modernity during the Civil yeah. War. You have you have an income tax for yeah. the first time that then gets, you know, annulled, uh, you know, eventually after the war drawn down. You have a kind of almost... 20th century regime, I think you could point out, uh, you know, parts of, you know, the sort of, you know, the the Yankee Leviathan, as you know, some people have called it in in that moment that actually some of it does wither away again. A lot of it does militarily after the war. Um, But there it it is. It is a it is a, you know, war is a warp drive, man. I mean, it really fried these institutions from from nothing. Yeah. The American army is, I think, 16,000 men (laughs) on the in 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 1860 uh, in 1861. Um, And, you know, you know, dominated by this kind of West Point officer cadre, which is like, you know, disproportionately Southern. And they've got to build from scratch. But if you want to talk about sort of the tail of the tape, North and South, you know, that kind of apocryphal thing, which I think is bullshit that that um, uh, there's that there's that famous story about like, you know, Sherman, right? You know, William T. Sherman, who's in 1861. He's a he's a actually most of the great Civil War generals were professors before the war. They're everywhere, right? There was, you know, uh, Stonewall Jackson was a professor at VMI. Sherman's a professor at, at an academy in Louisiana. And he, he has this line, right, that I think people often quote where it's right. like, no agricultural people has ever waged war against an industrial people and won. You are doomed, you know. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's true if you look at the numbers, if you look at, you know, industrial production, the production of armaments um, in, in the North. You know, I think Connecticut, you know, one town in Connecticut produced more weapons than the entire, you know, Confederate states. If you look at, um, uh, you know, just broad demographics, there's a there's a there's a, you know, two, three to one advantage. Uh, and in industrial production, it's like, you know, depending on what, what good you're looking at, it's, you know, eight or 20 or 50 to one. But I think actually what's interesting is if you look at the course of the war is that advantage was obviously decisive in some ways. But the South had no problem producing guns. You know, mm-hmm. the, the South set up its own ironworks and its own munitions factories and was never short of weapons. You know, the South, that was not why they lost. They were short of shoes. They were short of other, they were short of pa- like literally paper. Um, <laughs> you know, they ran out of other like basic shit because their economy wasn't up to snuff. But 
they were able to field armies you know, of considerable size against the weight of this massive disadvantage for a really long time by mobilizing, um, you know, an insane, you know, degree of their population and by dedicating the entire Southern economy to war fighting. Um, you know, the planner class had that social power to do that and they did that. And if you think that the North went into sort of took a warp core into modernity, yeah. like <laughs> the South basically like, you know, was undergoing a five-year plan under the Davis administration, <laughs> you know, in terms of the government had almost total control of the economy, uh, you know, through, through, um, you know, control of the railroads through control of, um, you know, expropriating, um, and, and, uh, you know, slave labor, um, you know, where and when it was needed through, uh, conscription through like massive, you know, total conscription of the entire laboring force of the South, um, organizing that this is a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a top down, it's a revolution from above, no question in Southern society. And so they go at it and they, they really do punch, uh, above their weight early on. They, they, they do well. Uh, and you see, uh, in those early years, poor Abraham Lincoln, who thought he was going to be president of the country, having to essentially be a babysitter to a bunch of <laughs> whiny dipshits, yeah. narcissistic mutants, and honestly, uh, Democrats. I mean, but like people talk about uh, the 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 malice uh, of a guy like McClellan oh, yeah. uh, and his you know uh, Martinet Napoleonic complex, but. <laughs> I mean, young Napoleon. Yeah. But part of his problem is that at the end of the day, he didn't really want to win the war. Like he did not want he did not right. want the uh, he did not want to do what the war at that point uh, was going to do if the North won, which was to end slavery. And that was not uh, he was not alone in feeling that among the, the upper ranks of the of the of course, the Democratic Party and also uh, the officer corps in the union. Totally, totally. Yeah, the officer corps on all sides is kind of dominated by this, you know, in the early stages of the war, especially by this kind of technocratic West Point, you know, Whiggishness. And I include within that the kind of moderate unionist Democrat types um, who, yeah, who want to kind of, you know, this is Winfield Scott's the general in chief. And he's like, OK, we're going to do a blockade and we're going to, um, you know, we're going to we're 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 going to, you know, just kind of put gentle pressure on them. And then maybe if necessary, I think Scott's idea was, you know, eventually we could send like a massive army down the Mississippi um, that that will, you know, win the war in one fell stroke. McClellan later does a version of this when he does the largest amphibious landing in, I still think, in the history of the Western Hemisphere in the Peninsular Campaign, when he, you know, just tries to, you know, muster this huge Napoleonic army to kind of take Richmond and win the war. But all of these guys are trying to do it without touching slavery. Right. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And they're not, um, they're trying to fight a war within the lines and avoid, you know, what Lincoln called the remorseless revolutionary struggle. But the truth is that that shit is slipping out of their control from the very beginning, right? right? Partially because enslaved people are, you know, running, running to union lines. They know, they know the score. Um, and partially because other generals like Fremont and different places, you know, are kind of, you know, thrusting across those lines, uh, like Ben Butler in, yeah. um, mm -hmm. in, in Virginia, who kind of, you know, creates this whole contraband you know, situation that sets up the confiscation act and partly because Republicans in Congress actually had not given up their plan of abolishing slavery, their, their plan of squeezing slavery to death and their plan of even doing so through making military emancipation part of that strategy. And, you know, this is Jim Oaks's somewhat recent book, which I really do think has 
kind of transformed certainly the way I teach this war rather than, you know, the kind of older dichotomy of it went from a war to save the union to a war to free the slaves. And that all changed with the flip of a switch in 1862 uh, or 1863. I mean, I think if you really look at what's happening, you do have serious resistance in the officer corps and in certain parts of the political class to uh, wage to war as an instrument of emancipation. But if you look at the dominant energy of Republicans in Congress, the 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 Henry Wilsons, who's the chair of the Senate Military Affairs Committee, other guys like that, they had all said, if you go out, you go out in blood. And granted, it was probably a lot of tough talk because they didn't no. think that was going to happen. But that's that was built into what their 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 threats, their warnings. You know, Carl Schurz gives this big speech in St. Louis in 1860. He's like, every slave cabin is an open wound. You know, every plantation is a sore. Like, we're gonna come when when war hits slave society, it's going to implode. And Republicans in Congress are chipping away at that. They they're passing this Confiscation Act. They're passing, um, you know. They're moving towards uh, envisioning a world where slavery is fatally wounded by this by this war, and that's what's happening, especially in the West, especially in um, especially in the in those early Grant campaigns in the Mississippi Valley, in in and then the 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 seizure of uh, New Orleans in early '62. You already have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of enslaved people, um, you know, effectively no longer uh, in either in Union lines or in a kind of limbo, but certainly not enslaved anymore, not chattel property. And uh, the war, in in my view, was always a war for an anti-slavery union. It was, it was a war to save the union, not to free the slaves, but it was a war for an anti-slavery union, a war for, for a union where slavery would be put on the road to ultimate extinction, as the president had said. And that road got a lot faster and shorter and steeper in 1861 and 1862. Now, shit does start to accelerate when the bodies pile up. No question about that. Mm -hmm. That's also what happens. But this stuff was happening from the start. And But then you have Lincoln uh, overseeing this process and uh, having to balance that trajectory and that momentum with his fixation on keeping the border states on board. Yes. And that really forms like the, the, the tension there between uh, his desire, obviously, to end slavery uh, and the, the, the trajectory of the war towards that end. But at the same time, there is this persistent uh, anxiety that this this organizing policy of keeping uh, your Delawares and your and your uh, Kentuckys on your side. Yeah, absolutely. That's the break. That's yeah. the real break. It's it's really about tactics. It's yeah. about if Kentucky, Missouri, and Maryland had joined the Confederacy. Not to mention, obviously, that would make things inconvenient for Washington D.C. But just the amount of the amount of uh, of industrial and human resources in those three states alone, um, you know, I think would have almost doubled the Confederate capacity, um, you know, in some aspects of war fighting, or at least, it, you know, added something like 50 percent in other areas. So this would have been it really would have changed the balance of power for winning the war. So I but I think that understanding that that's the break rather than a kind of deep ideological resistance to right. actually challenging slavery on the part of the Republican Party. I I think that is an important distinction. And the truth is they also start pressing the border states pretty early too. I mean their 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 strategy is that the border states will abolish slavery as part of its own political process, you know. So Lincoln is putting pressure on Delaware, on Maryland, on Kentucky to, to sort of pass anti-slavery laws. 
does that throughout the war. And in, so, and in, in some cases, he succeeds. In other cases, you know, like Delaware, Delaware. Yeah, like, those guys will just not take fucking yes for an answer. <laughs> no. Jesus Christ. Even compensated yeah. emancipation yeah. In, the, in the in the eye of the collapse of the Confederacy, there's still no deal. Fuck you. Yeah, you have to respect Delaware. You have to go with the Felix on this. Delaware rules. They just always <laughs> they just always win. Yeah. You know, they stay winning. Yeah. And, you know, from 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 James Bayard uh, in the 1840s and 50s through to to you know joe, joe biden. biden yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, well i just for my own clarification on that once you have like union armies in the field like occupying basically places like the border states like how live of a possibility were the border states switching into the confederacy mid-war like once basically things had settled into into war footing i mean i think it's i think the score is pretty much you know the writings on the wall by fall of 61 that that's not going to happen mm-hmm. that the you know kentucky kentucky had a pro-confederate governor mm-hmm. uh the confederacy again kind of got you know too juicy and you know kentucky had, kentucky's pro-confederate governor had had done this actually pretty sweet tactical move where he was like kentucky's neutral you shall not cross into kentucky's mm-hmm. you know neither side shall you know, trouble Kentucky or Switzerland sovereignty, <laughs> which is a kind of an amazing, you know, win for the Confederacy to say like that entire huge, you know, the, the Confederacy is the side in this war that has to be invaded, subdued mm, right. and eviscerated. And that's why, you know, you know, that's 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 their biggest advantage. So to say that this whole section of their front is safe, you know, that all of the, that whole border that's with cool. Virginia and Tennessee, but the Confederates, you know, impetuously kind of infringe Kentucky's sovereignty and, you know, that, uh, you know, they send some troops across a corner of it at, at some point. And um, that does, I think, seem to have have had an effect on the political climate in Kentucky and pushed people away from secession uh, uh, in, in 61. And then by the time they actually invade Maryland, uh, by the time Lee gets to Maryland in 62 and um, Braxton Bragg, uh, you know, briefly raises, you know, invades Kentucky, briefly raises the Confederate flag at uh, in Frankfurt. You know, they 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 briefly captured Kentucky in 62, but in neither case did the civilians rally to the Confederate cause. These are states that the truth is um their commit the, the the political class was deeply committed to slavery, mm-hmm. but the but the the average the the bulk of the population in in these places was not. You know, slavery's social hold on Kentucky and Maryland was way weaker uh, in, you know, on the ground than it was kind of at the elite. Mm-hmm. Can we talk tactics and strategies for a second? Just because you just brought it up. Why try to invade the North? What is Lee's reasoning there? Like, because your point is you're basically fighting a defensive war. They have to come and like, get you. Got, you. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah you, well, you, you guys, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be the Lee. I'll be, I'll be the pro Lee guy here. So you guys, <laughs> you guys got, go after him. You've got this position where you, you're doing, you have negotiations with Europe. That's a live wire as a possibility. You're still look. You're looking for the possibility of recognition. Uh, you have the fact that it. It. You know, the North is sure they're all together in. In there's a the a general unity around defending the the, the North, but there's also anti uh, war sentiment. Uh, the worse that the Union does, the more likely that sentiment is to increase. The longer it takes. The more it costs in blood and treasures, because dorks like to say. And you're also just thinking about the the post Civil War trajectory of American uh, war activities, where this situation has typically not gone good for us. Right, having to to, uh, d- to go somewhere else yeah. and subdue a local population to our whim, uh, typically does not does not run well. At least right. in the 20th and 21st century. Why not a war of attrition? Yeah, yeah. Why not Joe Johnston? I can't believe you guys are taking Joe Johnston over my boy Hot Rob. <laughs> Hot Robert Lee will not be defamed in my presence. The most beautiful of all American generals. Um, he was quite.
Yes. <laughs> the uh, the uh, the the. I mean, look. I think there's a good case. There's it's a good argument. It's a good argument to make, and it's a good one to have. I mean, if you're gonna do the ultra nerd thing of like, let's get in, let's get under the gamer's cap of the Confederate strategy. I, that's what know. this episode okay, is for. I know our audience that. wants at least. A let's do that. that. I mean, I think there are a couple reasons why there are a couple problems with that with that you know shit eating Joe Johnston you know retreat and defeat kind of approach for the it Confederacy. Works for the Russians against Napoleon. That's all. Yeah, I guess. but <laughs> the Russians. So okay, but I think here's here's one like sort of social fact that is different that the confederates couldn't just bleed territory they had a lot of territory to defend and they could lose some but this is a slaveholding society whose whose social fabric is based on having in essence um you know total police power and control over its land and it's spread thin it's not a place that you know just had a few urban centers that it you know kind of needed to defend at all costs its territory is the whole territory so losing in those early first years of the war losing essentially the whole of not just the border states but by 62 they've basically lost all of tennessee mm-hmm. um the, by the end of 62 most of arkansas you know chunks of um they they you know chunks of uh you know big chunks of virginia something like the, the territory the size of idaho really really deeply weakens their their ongoing ability to sort of you know in, in essence raise men because these are populous areas relatively terms in, in confederacy but then Above all, how do you do a war of attrition while running a slave society? I just think that that's a really hard thing. And, you know, in a sense, um, I guess it would, you know, I don't know what it would look like. It might look like what happened in 64 where they were Johnston and Lee were kind of holding off, bottling up Grant and Sherman for a few months. And, you know, you, 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 you kind of retreated, but you bunkered yourself in and you occupied the enemy army so they didn't just go marauding mm-hmm. around your territory. But I think ultimately the Confederates had to defend this vast, they had a huge frontier to defend, um, you know, in a way that, and they couldn't simply just abandon large chunks of 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 their of their territory because when northern troops arrived social revolution followed yeah it -hmm. wasn't just a question of like okay i can move my pieces here and there and oh yeah okay uh bye bye louisiana fuck you never liked you anyway (laughs) like they they couldn't do that ideologically if they wanted to sort of raise the troops because the forces at play that that undergirded this this society demanded protection from and in effect, by 62, a marauding abolitionist army. So I think they, I think you're right, though, that they needed a political end. They needed the North's will to collapse. So the question is, how do you break the North's will well, without just retreating and, you know, hemorrhaging, you know, slaves and social control? Uh, and I think, you know, Hot Rob's idea was, you know, go for the jugular. You yeah. know, he, his, you know, his bow ideal of a campaign was the Winfield Scott, uh, you know, conquest of Mexico, where yeah. Scott took this small army against much larger, uh, against a, through to, a much to larger the force. Yeah. Exactly. And kind of carved his way through the mountains, outflanking and sort of outmaneuvering, you know, uh, the f- relatively well-equipped Mexican force at the time. And, and you know, sort of achieved achieved this, you know, huge coup and, you know, conquest of, of the, of the enemy capital. And I don't think Lee was thinking he was going to do that to Washington, but he thought that if you go on the offensive, um, you know, you can actually inflict blows on not just the enemy's warfighting capacity, but, but morale. And I think his, clearly his invasions were timed in 62 was clearly timed to affect the midterm elections Mm -hmm. in the fall. And if he had won at Antietam, 
Um, you know, who knows what, how, if he had broken the back of McClellan, you know, think about it. McClellan practically lost that battle, even though he knew oh exactly where the fuck oh Lee's God. army was. Oh my fucking <laughs> Imagine God. if they <laughs> had the goddamn orders. If they hadn't found the orders, what if Lee had just totally fucked McClellan well, at Sharpsburg? That's the, that's the Harry Turtle dove uh, yeah. thesis. Of yeah. The okay. Right. Books I read way too many of. Right. And right. I, I, and I do think like. The South, obviously, they are in a big hole materially. Oh, if it goes on long enough, they lose. Yeah. It's inevitable. But like, if there was a chance to win, it probably was that first invasion uh, of Maryland. Uh, what about though? Does it, by Gettysburg is is it still a live possibility, or has it already has it already too late? Is that already kind of a hail mary? With with little real chance of success, I think it's a. I think that's a hail, more of a hail mary. I, I think. I think. I mean, the question is again. You would need. My feeling is to uh, for the South to actually win, it can't just be on the battlefield. You need, even if they had won at Gettysburg, what you need was, and this is why I actually think, um, you know, I don't, I don't, I think even losing at Antietam wouldn't have wouldn't have won them the war. I think the threshold is higher because you needed either you needed a political solution. You needed the Republicans out of office. Lincoln was not going to accept a Confederate state. The entire raison d'etre of the Republican Party was to preserve this anti-slavery union. So to, to lose on both counts, to lose the union and to lose, um, you know, the capacity to, to, to contain and control slavery and uh, undermine slavery was not going to happen, even in the face of a reverse, two, three reverses. You needed them voted out of office. So you needed a Democratic victory. That might have happened at the 62 midterms if it had been a, a wave election. That's one possibility. I guess if the if if he'd won at Gettysburg, you could have had the pieces in motion for a 64 right. uh, victory. But if you look at the election of 64, my newest take on this is Lincoln won pretty soundly. He did. And it, he won by it was it was a, it, he won by a better margin than he'd had in 60. I don't. And that that was even after some, you know, pretty fucking bloody, yeah. the bloodiest year of the war, the bloodiest months of the war in 64. Yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering and about. And it was the guys getting shot who were voting for him more than anyone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. With, with the troops vote. So well, I, here's a question. I don't know if you have any background or research on this, because I did want to talk about how we talked a lot about how the war changed Lincoln, but I did want to get into how the war changed the populace. Is there any evidence at all that you were just saying the people who got shot were the people voting for him? Anything of like, you had to vote. If you were in the field, if you're getting shot at, you had to vote for it. Because if you're voting against it, it's like, what are you even doing out there? Yeah. I mean, that's a little armchair and analysis of, mm -hmm. of the typical uh, soldier. But that's I, I kind of see that as, as how one might think about it. I do think that is something that gets lost sometimes in the Civil War when we, we, we and, you know, the three of us here are doing this too. And that's okay that we, we get into gods and generals mindset. Mm -hmm. You know, it's pretty easy to do that. Um, well, especially um, because the characters of the, yeah, of the generals at the yeah, time are so big and, and interesting. It's, it's fine. But I mean, this was predominantly more than I would say more than almost any other episode in U.S. history, except possibly World War Two. But in some ways, even more, even more dramatically than that, uh, as Lincoln said, a people's contest, you know, the Civil War, both North and South. I mean, you know, undeniably in the South, it was a people's revolution, uh, you know, an enslaved people's revolution, but um, and, a, and a revolution from above and then an enslaved people's revolution from below. But even in the North, which was in some cases much less affected by the war, there was still, as we talked about, the sort of massive government interventions and transformations, but also a mass mobilization, you know, kind of unlike any, certainly unlike any that any, you know, there were no precedent in, in national history um, in terms of the three million, you know, American 
Americans who, you know, you know, transforming northern labor in, you know, who, who whose appearance on the front lines transformed, you know, how farming worked. You know, you had, you know, farm daughters in the fields all through Iowa. You know, mm-hmm. you had, you know, a, a deep mobilization of those same guys who were wide awakes in 1860 were at the front in 61 and in 64. Mm-hmm. And I think my read of the best scholarship on civil on Union soldiers in the Civil War is that this was an ideological war. They were aware it was for cause and comrades, as you know, McPherson's book put it. You know, it was and cause, you know, came in a lot of ways first. And yes, that cause was the Union. Um, that's often how they described it. But it was it's overwhelmingly clear, you know, when you have 70 percent of soldiers voting Republican, that union is Lincoln's union. Mm-hmm. It's the anti it's the union of the rightfully elected anti-slavery Republican president whose anti-slavery is a thing that triggered the war. And everyone knew this. This was not like a oh, go bugger slavery. You know, yeah. I, there were, of course, there were people who said that. Yeah. But that was not the dominant impulse in this average person's war. And, you know, the the, the sort of the the the, the people's war moments in the Civil War are are great. I, I want to do a couple of them. Sure, here, okay. go for it. In terms of sort of northern privates, you know, to call out. One, both involved the, both involving the Lee family. One, one of the dopest things the U.S. government has ever done was basically <laughs> take, take yeah. Robert E. Lee's family estate awesome. and, and just put the, the bodies of the men that, you know, his army killed yeah. in it. You know, uh, in 1864, when, um, you know, in search of a new uh, Civil War cemeteries, the graves began to fill up in D.C. They took this historic state owned by George Washington's, you know, grandson that Lee had married into and whose slaves Lee had, you know, worked to the bone and whipped and recaptured in the 1850s and and and, and took that site and said, yeah, we're going to put uh, Civil War bodies in there. And do you know, here's a, here's a fact. Do you know the name of the first private who was buried in Arlington National Cemetery in 1864. No. No. William Henry Christman is his name. (laughs) (laughs) Shit. And his his story is a sad one, but also a typical representative one in some ways. His brother, Barnabas Christman, (laughs) he was was a Pennsylvanian, uh, a farm laborer from the Poconos. His brother, Barnabas, had been killed in 62 in combat. William enlisted uh, in 64, March of 64, um, you know, wrote a... Uh, according to the according to online in in the in the deep web of of civil war nerdery a famous letter uh <laughs> talking about how well how how much he enjoyed the grub in in camp in april uh and was dead of measles <laughs> by may he's the only <laughs> the only guy there being like you know this hard tack's pretty good yeah <laughs> the shit tastes good we get plenty to eat yeah anyway but was dead of measles after an 11 day battle without having seen yeah. the front oh, without having seen the shit. and i think that's actually kind of beautiful because you know we know that the majority of Civil War casualties were, you know, from disease yeah. and not from battle. There were, you know, obviously hundreds of thousands wounded and killed in, in combat. But the majority of the something like 800,000 dead, we now think, um, were from disease. And it's kind of great that this guy, that this Chrisman is the first soldier buried in because in, in a way, you know, this the exposure to all this disease comes about through this mobilization right. yeah. through this. You know, we we know about, um, you know, they weren't social distancing <laughs> in, in in the Army of the Potomac. And Although maybe you know, that would make it a little easier to when you're doing like lines of of rifle <laughs> fire of everybody six feet apart. <laughs> it's a lot harder when everybody's all tightly packed in. They yeah. thought about that. But like, you know, Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia is responsible for those deaths, I think, morally as much as any other. And right. it's, it's just great that he gets a shot out. So the other one, the slightly more heroic story that that I was that I came across recently was um, a pretty epic battlefront win in in 1864 uh, when Lee's son, 
George Washington Custis Lee, who was Jefferson Davis's aide de camp, you know, graduated first in his class at West Point and um, was this kind of achiever, you know, wonderkind in the Confederacy. Um, was you know leading uh, leading some troops in some of the battles after uh, after you know after Lee had left Petersburg on the way to Appomattox only a couple of days before the before the surrender and uh, he you know is in combat a Union officer approaches him he sh- he takes his pistol out and he shoots the Union officer from the neck to the groin and <laughs> you know he falls down and you know it's like the hue and cry of the battle but then this Union private Daniel White jumps up. And captures him at gunpoint and takes him prisoner. Uh, and and he's like, I refuse to surrender to a bring me to an officer. I refuse to surrender to an enlisted man. You know, and so he brings in an officer. But the fact is, this guy captured his ass, this yeah. private. And when Lee's son, his firstborn son and little hero was captured, that you know, that was that was a one of the one of the dominoes that fell a couple days before Appomattox that caused him to call it off in 65, which is just, just you know, obviously you don't need these little anecdotes. You know for a fact that there were the, that there were millions of these troops whose blood actually won this war. But um, I like those little stories about uh, about the uh, the lesser knowns. Well, I think that moments like that with the people's the private, war. you know, then you you hear stories like this in in every war, but it is those things that really drive home that they were participants, that they needed to do something, that they needed to intervene and maybe sacrifice or or give the possibility of sacrifice on themselves to die of measles dive measles capture lee's firstborn son yeah stick (laughs) stick their head out to capture the things like yeah i think that those stories are are always valuable yeah so before we get to the end of the war just a little uh little like sports radio style generals who you got overrated (laughs) who's in your five who's who's in your five up top and down well like i said i'm high on hot rob i think he i think i mean i i actually loathe him uh as a as a as a as a character but i think he i think he actually did i think he played his shitty hand about as well as they could have played it um but really okay who he was am i blessed in his opponents too though of course yes yes <laughs> absolutely absolutely um so i'm not i'm not saying i'm high on him i i should i just you, you I'm don't not, like i'm him. not a hater you as, don't like him but damn you got to respect him i you got you got to respect the you know the the curve of his nostril um <laughs> Who do I, who is, I mean, I don't know, Matt, who, who's your, do you, I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to kick it back to you. Cause I'm just thinking about who, who I, well, I'm, I've always been a George Thomas Stan. Yes. Little yes. Rock of Chickamauga, <laughs> a, a Virginian, a Virginian, from a slave owning family Absolutely. who was disowned by that family to, to fight for the union and fought, yeah. fought way better than, than many, many, uh, many Northerners. That's for sure. What, what are his hits? Uh, I mean. Saving the 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 army of the Cumberland at the Battle of Chickamauga. That's a pretty big one. Didn't he just absolutely annihilate? Uh, and he Bell annihilated Hood? John Bell Hood yeah. uh, at Franklin. At yes. Franklin, that was just uh, and that that battle is one of my personal favorites because of the the astounding number of uh, Confederate generals who got killed. I think it was <laughs> yeah. something like twelve generals got killed in that battle. Just yeah, <laughs> officer like massacre. Which yeah. is the, uh, in any battle, the officers are the ones who deserve to die the most. <laughs> yeah, and to, in fairness to the Confederate officer class, they oh, no, did they, fucking they bought die. all that Rod, they uh, died, Walter Scott and, shit. Yeah, you know the kind of um, rich man's war, poor man's fight. I mean, if you look at the numbers, Confederate, it was a rich, it was a rich man's fight too for yeah. the Confederacy because they they got o- utterly owned. Same thing at Pickett's Charge. You know yeah. the number of 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 Confederate officers who just ate it. Um, it doesn't. You know they they, they still are again this this 
this is a class that is distinguished for the ownership and brutalization of millions of human beings who then cause the deaths of millions of others in defense of that. So this is not an apologia, but they did they did put their balls on the lines and had them chopped off. They were they were they were captured by a romantic ideal yeah. in a way that uh, are there basically doesn't exist among any of the ruling class we have now. It's I mean, been, it's been machine. Uh, washed out of them by uh, modernity, really. In terms of union generals, I mean, again, it's it's real, it's it's really corny, but I, you know, I love I love Ulysses. Oh yeah, I, you know, I, I you know I love his private's uniform, his yep. like cucumbers uh, for his cucumbers and coffee for breakfast, <laughs> you know, and his his, his well done steaks because he couldn't stand the sight of blood. Yeah, <laughs> I, I love all the little anecdotes about him. It, but yeah, the ultimate kind of Galena leather clerk fail son who couldn't hack it in the shitty Antebellum army unlike Lee who was like this like perfect little careerist yeah. um, uh, you know who like you know struggled with alcohol and family life and all this other hard shit in, in, at, at midlife and then was you know called upon um, to deliver the death blow to the Confederacy, which is beautiful. So I I, I like Ulysses. I like there. There's another a couple other random ones. Obviously, I like um, the you know the 54th Massachusetts guys. But do you know about Edmund Wild and his African regiment? I don't think so. This is another guy, a kind of you know a kind of New England abolitionist who you know joined. Uh, actually, he had a he was a medical doctor. He was an army doctor for the Ottoman Empire. He'd like he'd actually <laughs> done service in the Crimean War, which is pretty dope. Yeah. Um, and with the Turks, by the yeah, way, right. yeah, on the right <laughs> side. Yeah, and uh, and and then and then enlisted in, uh, you know, joined joined the service in '61, and then you know was one of the first to sign up to lead a black regiment and led. Spent most of '63 and '64 with his, you know, Wilds African Regiment, which is a great name, like terrorizing Low Country, North Carolina planter class. Um, helping lot thousands of slaves escape, and then in the '64 campaign, you know, against against Richmond, um, you know, set up a fort I think called like Fort Pocahontas or something, mm -hmm. and was kind of committing depredations with his you know colored <laughs> troops uh, in southeastern Virginia. And they sent Fitzhugh Lee, another Lee family you know shithead scion, a nephew of Robert E. Uh, and a cavalry detachment, uh, you know, who was, I think at this point, first in line to be like Jeb Stewart's replacement mm -hmm. uh, in, in as, as a sort of cavalry chief for the Army of Northern Virginia to sort of subdue at, at the behest of these like slave, influential slaveholders in the kind of Richmond area who are like, wild Africans are terrorizing the countryside. He sends, you know, Fitzhugh Lee to go after uh, Wild's regiment. And they're all, it's a reverse of Fort Wagner, where, you know, the famous, you know, the, in, in, in glory, where you have, you know, these black troops sent on this suicide mission yeah. against entrenched, fortified, you know, uh, Confederates. This time, uh, the U.S. colored troops are the ones, you know, in this in this fort that they've built uh, on the James River. And, you know, Fitzhugh's cavalry tries to come at them and gets totally fucked up and suffers like 200 ca casualties to like 40 uh, Union and is forced to is forced to is forced to retreat. And it kind of damages Fitzhugh Lee's reputation. And he's like totally embarrassed that he lost to black troops and blah, 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 blah. Um, again, just a smaller thing. But I love I love the stories like that. There's there's just so many. It's such a it's such a vast canvas. Yeah. The dude who did the raid in the Buckboard, uh, Benjamin Grierson, big fan of him, music teacher, couldn't even really ride a horse. They just sent him with a bunch of guys to fuck the shit out of uh, Mississippi, and uh, he did it. Uh, barely any casualties, made it back to Union lines, uh, swollen with booty. Uh, love that dude. <laughs> I think that's like, 
one of the things that is just in general when you think about like civil war nerdery and thinking about it as a historical event why it is so fertile for nerdery because it's so vast and there's so many details that you can get into and the campaigns go everywhere like basically the entirety of america east of the mississippi is like part of the war at some point and there's so many little eddies of people you can focus into and become obsessed about but that also is i think one of the things that makes it a little resistant to having even a kind of casual knowledge of the course of the war because it's it's moving up it's moving down things you know all sorts of things are getting taken and lost at every given point of it um like five battles of winchester alone. yeah exactly yeah, it's it's i mean there when are you're books- trying to do a, a bird's eye view it it, it resists an easy narrative put on top of it. You know, you read books about like, you know, it's like Lee and Grant March 13th to <laughs> May, 20, you know, to March 25th, 1864. Yeah. There's like a 350 page book yeah. about that. Week. About, about 10 days because that much complex shit was happening. Yeah, yeah. 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 Every campaign has at least one book. Yeah. All right. So Lincoln, obviously uh, over the course of the war noted for his just uncanny ability to, to detect sort of the, the moment and to to meet it uh and then that all all that ability kind of falls out of his asshole and out of the republican party's asshole when they decide to put on the ticket for the 64 uh, election as as a gesture towards all those disaffected democrats and the border states and elsewhere uh andrew johnson uh and yeah. that i really do think more than any i mean talking about tyler again as like a, a moment in time sort of bent by contingency like we talk about all this revolutionary energy, this 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 cause that has been imbued by millions of people with meaning by sacrifice, uh, and then a person in the form of uh, Lincoln who had experienced it from the the highest point and had embodied that moment, being replaced overnight by probably the single worst person in America to <laughs> hold that job. And then because of the vagaries of our idiotic constitution has basically individual autonomy to direct the immediate course of of, uh, the post-war era. Uh, How how much do you think that that is an (laughs) is a I mean, you you could hardly have done worse by making like Alexander Stevens president. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's complicated because there's some there there is a take out there that, you know, Johnson in his, you know, in, in, in his blundering and in his, you know, stubbornness and in his sort of reactionary um, you know, position on 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 the legacy of the war that he radicalizes Congress and right. that, you know, that pushes and advances military reconstruction, you know, and congressional government who, you know, they basically just start, you know, doing reconstruction over his head, overriding all of his vetoes by 67, 68. And, um, you know, it, it, it even though they fail to impeach him, that they, you know, in effect, take you know, you know, after especially after the landslide of 66, you know, that's the momentum. It's Johnson's kind of, you know, fuckery that 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 produces radical reconstruction. Now, I don't I don't actually but I don't I don't buy that yeah. take because I think what actually produces um, radical reconstruction is the wave of, you know, bloody yeah. white Southern resistance 
in, you know, planner class resistance in 66 and these massacres in the South that um, maybe wouldn't have happened, I suppose, if, you know, Lincoln and the Republicans had still been, you know, the the regular executive branch had still been, you know, you hadn't had Johnson's kind of clap back in 65 where he just starts pardoning everyone. But I just can't imagine how not having, uh, you know, an anti-slavery Republican Party president in that complicated right. period would not have... Um, made the response more strong and coherent. Because uh, clearly there was going to be this deep, bitter right. social resistance to bringing any kind of multiracial democracy to the South. Yeah. Um, and how the North responded to that was, you know, up, up, up for question. And the fact is, in again, in 66, in that key election, one of the, one of the I think, less you know, one of the most consequential and least remembered elections in U.S. history, which is, you know, where Johnson just gets, you know, t- does the swing around the circle and gets right. like, totally humiliated. Um, the you thing know, that he, we read on the episode about him, his platform collapsing and killing like 20 people. Yeah, oh, yeah. Just oh, you guys are talking leave. about this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, that, that's something Yeah, I feel like everybody should should know and about. And he's that. comparing yeah. himself to like, you know, Jesus Ju- Christ. Jesus Christ <laughs> and, you know, you know, the Democrats or the Republicans are Judas Iscariot or something. And Stephen's very unfair to me. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. But he gets his, but he's like slurring his words and he gets his metaphors mixed up and he's like, no, I'm not Judas. I'm Jesus. They're Judas. <laughs> it's like literally like that's in the headlines. Like president declares, I am not Judas Iscariot. Um, you know, like that's the headline you want. Um, and it, it's a total mess. But that, that election, again, just to underline the people's contest element here, which is, I think is true of reconstruction, that election, that landslide is the thing that empowers, you know, in effect, had Stevens's reconstruction so far as it went, which yeah. didn't go far enough, didn't, you know, they didn't obviously get, we, and we've talked about this before, they didn't get the confiscation they needed, right. they didn't get the, you know, the occupation, frankly, that they needed, they didn't get the 20 years right. that we got in Afghanistan, yeah. you know, they yeah. needed at oh least God. that much in the yeah. South. They didn't get any of that, but the extent that they got it, um, it was because of the mandate that they had from the Northern electorate, which right. said, which was still outraged by um, you know, the, the Confederates had done treason, killed almost a million people and were, were getting let off the hook by Andrew Johnson. And so, I, you know, it's actually sort of hard to parse these counterfactuals, but I, I just can't imagine that that energy couldn't have been directed, you know, in a in a in a in a way that would be better for history. Right. If uh, yeah. if, if Johnson had been president. Yeah. I mean, well, the thing that always gets me about that presidential period is is Johnson uh, replacing generals, uh, occupation authorities who were uh, sympathetic to the freedmen, sympathetic to confiscation, and replacing them with uh, uh, pre-war dough faces and and technocrats, uh, sending in the Union Army to take from uh, uh, formerly enslaved people who had been resettled on lands in like South Carolina and just and then evicting them because like if there was going to be uh, a a, a multiracial democracy, it would have had to have been predicated to some degree on on uh, a some sort of land-based like economic power that, yeah. that then could be asserted because and 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 Johnson made it his mission to reenthrone uh, uh, at the political level the, the 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 secessionists and then at the economic level to to just give back to the people who had killed everyone uh, this land and that meant that that the coalition that that was sort of in utero there the like of of former slaves of of former union soldiers of the of this northern electorate and of poor whites in the south who had never been on board with the confederate project in the first place yep. and in fact had been 
uh, oppressed significantly and had to run into the hills to avoid uh, uh, armies uh, uh, like uh, cavalry guys coming to try to drag them into the Confederate army. That mm-hmm. that that would have required a uh, yeah a a a a engine of economic sort of security because otherwise what happens and what we did see happen is is uh, the former uh, slaves become this uh, captive class without land without access to the economy briefly has votes and has a political consequence in you know 67 68 you know into the early 1870s but but no economic or social base to draw from and that was one of the main failings of a large section of the republican party where the people fixated on the idea that if you give the vote that that is the panacea yeah is that that is all you need yes and that nothing and that nothing else is is required and that that really was one of the the foundational uh bungles uh and then it's those forces who end up uh uh, raising up the man on horse uh, Ulysses S. Grant to uh, solidify this this Republican Party that has essentially given up on doing anything more to change uh, the American political structure or economic structure beyond just the bare fact of ba- abolishing slavery. Totally, totally. Yeah, I mean, I just say on um, on 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 Johnson, it's true because you know Johnson comes in in 65 and yes it's true some of his uh you know the the sort of the the, the black codes that that you know when all of the sort of state governments return to power that were basically like Alexander Stevens is like only a few months after after the war is like showing up he's like hey guess what I'm back in the Senate you know um and you know Congress refused to seat them and they over and they do military reconstruction and they overrule a lot of these black codes and there is the moment of radicalism is post Johnson but there's some stuff Stuff that never got rolled back, right. like the land, yeah. like the forty acres and a mule. That you know that yeah. the the classic episode in the you know the the Georgia Carolina Sea Isles where you know Sherman does that field order fifteen yeah. and you know you know grants former enslaved people like hundreds of thousands of acres and they you know the the state governments take that away in presidential reconstruction the radicals never give it back yeah so there is i think i think that's right it's materially that's that was the tender moment yeah and you know B- johnson being tried not to say that lincoln was going to go out there and start you know chopping up right. big estates but um the possible but but the possibilities become you know squinched to this right. narrowest window because with if you have if you if you have a situation where lincoln in office is not making it his job to like take land away from yes. former slaves yes and then those uh communities have you know political power and assert it then the the federal government backs up that like yes. actual facts on the ground uh, as that, yeah. it backs up that existing you know a nascent uh, uh political uh, economic structure and then pushes forward from it in the same and is pulled in the same way by the same momentum that had led to the war that's why and 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 you know lincoln i think obviously not assassinated you have a lot of opportun- options, but for me, like the the apocalyptic scenario uh, in the good sense, like the good apocalypse, is Benjamin Butler, yes. who was offered the pres- yes. vice presidency and turned it down, uh, becomes president after Lincoln is assassinated and just decides to uh, do a project, a political project based entirely on vengeance and punishment. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I do not think he would have had a lot of resistance from the grassroots Republican base in the United States if he had in done 1865, that. In 1865, with Lincoln's dead on the ground. That's true. Yeah. Well, that's that, what the radicals wanted. That's it, why, you know, Ben Wade was all fired up yes. when Lincoln got and shot. And I think, like, in, if you have a Butler who was all about punishing Confederates, uh, one of his signal achievements 
Uh, one of my favorite moments from his career uh, as governor of uh, uh, military governor of New Orleans is when uh, he arrested a bunch of guys for pulling down the American flag uh, from the courthouse in New Orleans and stomping on it and running through the streets with it. He arrested them. And there was a ringleader who he was not uh, he was like a local uh, like lump and prawl, like a gambling, uh, like a gambler. This guy, uh, I think his name was William Morgan. And it was all everyone assumed that they were going to put him on trial and they were going to sentence him to be hanged. And then Butler was going to pardon him. Commute the sentence, I was like, yeah. OK, you know, warning. And they have the trial. They have they put him up on the scaffolding. He gives an impassioned speech on the on the gallows about how, uh, you know, I'm, I was doing it for liberty and all that. And uh, Butler's just like, yeah, no, fucking hang on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, <laughs> that actually got, the, 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 the British condemned him for that. That, that it was seen as yeah. unsportsmanlike. Yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. And, uh, but, I mean, like that, that energy of the White House with, a, with Lincoln dead on the ground at the hand of a fucking uh, a, a Confederate sympathizer. Uh, and also a guy who was in contact with the goddamn Confederate secret police. <laughs> Yeah, a guy who was essentially a Confederate agent. Yep. Um, uh, I, I just. I, I don't mean, it's think, funny because I Johnson, certainly don't think in that situation Jefferson Davis gets to uh, go home and write his fucking write his self memoirs. Oh, exculpatory yeah. memoirs. That's his, for sure. His, if I did it, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe he gets the sour, the sour, the sour apple tree instead. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, we didn't get to live in the world with the, no, the good apocalypse of Butler, but and I guess that's where I have my kind of last question, which is a kind of purposely trolley question which is given how the war ended given the following five years the following 20 years the rest of american history did the south really lose the civil war and if so what did they lose matt you go first because you, you guys were just talking about this on yeah. chapa right well yeah. this is what brought it up is yeah. felix kind of said this offhandedly and i i wanted to put it to a more serious question for me it discussion. comes down to as always does what you're how you're defining the south you know i would say that like what Johnson thought he was doing when he was not just being a narcissistic freak, uh, when he was um, when he was imagining himself as a tribune of like you know the the the, the plain white people of the south, right. they lost. They absolutely lost. They got they lost their land. They they got turned into uh, sharecroppers share and then like proletarian workers in the in the uh, industries that went south uh, uh, after the war. Uh, what, they, we, what they, we'd call today rednecks. Yeah, they did not win. They they lost. Uh, at, but the the planter elite got to the ones who weren't destroyed fully by the war. The ones who made the right calls were able to be essentially bought out of their position uh, at the top of this you know this fake feudal land that they this this order that they well, were willing to fight and die for because it was like central to their identities. But, you know, having lost and having gotten the deal offered by Johnson in the aftermath, they were able to essentially buy themselves into positions as the new uh, the new capitalist class of the South. Uh, and then they become the leaders of the bourbon Democrats. Uh, and it's hard to see them as losers in the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, I'll make my case for why they lost. OK, I mean, we could talk about it. I Obviously, they, you know, um, you know, they didn't they didn't lose nearly as bad as they should have in the long scheme of things. They did. You know, you're right about, you know, most of the stats on on land holding. I think there was a paper came out recently that, you know, talked about, you know, 
you know, there was a massive loss of, you know, some economic analysis, massive, you know, obviously loss of wealth in terms of the, you know, millions of dollars, billions of dollars of slave wealth that was, you know, liquidated in essence in the 1860s. But by the 1880s, look, it seems like they'd basically regained, you know, land holding and, and even wealth levels from before the war. So on that narrow measure, yeah, they, you know, they, there wasn't a long-term redistribution of power in the South. Uh, on the other hand, I, I guess there, were, there were, I do think that they, I, I want to say they lost for a couple of reasons. One, uh, the entire social order was not just based on, of, of the antebellum United States, it was not just based on uh, white supremacy. It was based on chattel slavery, mm-hmm. which was a di- particular kind of domination that had particular impacts on both the enslaved and the slaveholder. And so to kind of trade that system in for a basically a second tier kind of bourbon capitalist democracy, you know, or bourbon capitalist oligarchy rather, um, is a demotion in Mm -hmm. terms of, certainly in terms of the national power that they had. Right. You know, they were completely, this is the class that had, you know, run the U.S. government from 1790 to 1860. And they don't get back in the saddle again until deep into the 20th century. Mm -hmm. You could say Wilson uh, to some extent, but in some ways it's almost not until after the Second World War that you have a kind of, you know, late 20th century that you have a kind of Southern of, you know, American, national American politics. So, um, you know, to the extent that they define them, the, the way that the antebellum class would have defined itself as the owners of slaves and the, the kind of the, 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 the ruling class of the Republic, um, they lose both of those things and they never get them back. And it's, it's okay. It, I, you don't want to get into this whiggish bullshit where it's like, well, you know, the end of slavery did set the stage for the civil mm-hmm. rights movement. It's like, that was a hundred years fucking later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like that's a different struggle. But but there were victories in not just temporary. There were clearly temporary victories. There was a social revolution in the South. There were where, you know, th- that battle at, um, you know, Fort Pocahontas happened where, yeah. you know, these, you know, former formerly enslaved soldiers, you know, killed a bunch of their masters. That <laughs> happened a lot. Um, you know, that that inversion of the social order throughout the South in the moment of emancipation really did happen. Um, and. Um, the, you know, the, the reengineering of the U S constitution did happen, which did have longer term, both short term and longer term consequences. And then basically on the ground level, I do think there were some things that never really were rolled back. If you look at, I mean, and this is maybe less about how badly the South lost, but not to be an apologia, but to really understand the history, you know, if you look at basically like the amount of, um, you know, hours of labor and wealth that enslaved people performed under slavery and then un- in in you know in the sort of Jim Crow era um you know they were they they had much greater autonomy and much they they won still a puny but a much larger share of the wealth of the region right. um they had there is there was a material benefit to emancipation if mm-hmm. you just look at the numbers in terms of um you know wages and wealth you know if you look at education you know literacy rates you mm-hmm. know soar after the war if you look at marriage and family stability and kind of the capacity for, you know, obviously like individual autonomy is still, you know, totally um, under the thumb of this oppressive society, but yet markedly greater than it was under slavery. There are some like deep fucking changes. And so I guess I resist the the kind of like total blanket continuity in terms of Southern society, right. because this was a different order. Yeah. Or the kind of 
I guess, way of a, a kind of all is lost moralistic 21st century way of looking at. Yeah. You know, and, you know, Matt and I have been spending a lot of time talking about American history and, and focusing on counterfactuals, what ifs, contingent moments. And I do think that in thinking about those contingent moments and what ifs, you can somewhat lose some the sight of of the way things could have gone better loses sight in of, some ways of of what of did what, go well of what improvements happen yeah, yeah well, and it's and it's not even so much it's like i mean it, it, this is this is perilously close to like paved the way for whatever whatever but it you really couldn't if you if you had a slave society you really couldn't have had not just a civil rights movement you couldn't have even had um arguably i think i mean marx would have agreed you couldn't even have had a successful northern labor movement you couldn't right. even have had the new deal um mm-hmm. you know without in some ways without right. you know with a with a with a with a southern society that looked like it did before the war you know you couldn't have had um and you certainly couldn't have had the civil rights movement itself and so like it doesn't mean that this victory then inevitably led to this other victory, mm. but it does mean that, I mean, and I think, I guess this is, this is maybe a little preachy, but I do want to feel, I feel like it actually is a little bit dis- disrespectful mm-hmm. to um, the people of the 1860s who like struggled and died and like, and bled and fought to create this authentic American revolution yes. to say that everything that they did kind of just melted away in the, you know, in the sunrise of Jim Crow. Cause I, I don't think that that's actually true materially. And I don't think that that is in a, in a deeper sense, like true morally about like understanding human activity and history. Sure. Well, yeah. Cause you have to, you have to uh, situate people in the moment that they're, 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 they are in. And in that context, like the civil war is this, this revolutionary moment where millions of people are asserting for themselves like their freedom, their 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 humanity, uh, and are asserting their ability to to shape the world uh, yes. away from their exploitation and towards some sort of notion of egalitarianism, some sort of notion of true democracy. Uh, and and the history ever since has been the forces unleashed by that sort of in conflict with one another. Because yes, you have on the one hand the emergence of this new notion of of a, of civil rights of 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 citizenship that transcends race and the thing that helps it conquer uh that helps bring it into being and helps defeat this um this slave society and this society of sort of uh pseudo feudal order uh is this industrial capitalism that has its own prerogatives and that is that then is shapes the uh terrain for new battles that people in the future then have to fight where at every point it is this contest between the, the sort of the merciless uh, demands of the market and uh, the demands of of the machinery of capitalism and the people within it uh, trying to band together in any way they can to to assert humanity in its face. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, 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 I guess my like stupid stupid person's gloss on like how do you make sense of the Civil War in like big history, you know, you know, sort of morally politically is. You know, I mean, it's just two lines from Du Bois, basically. It's, you know, it, the the struggles of the Civil War era were the, you know, the greatest struggle for democracy in modern history mm-hmm. on one hand. And a revolution happened, uh, you know, in, in, in favor of some kind of democratic right. egalitarianism. And then also um, the counter revolution of property, you know, in his phrase, the kind of the, the triumph of the, you know, of Gilded Age capitalism in the late 19th century of of property and of capital itself in in a new form that, you know, basically puts the brakes on definitively, you know, alongside obviously a lot of, you know, racial violence in the South, puts the brakes on that movement and sets the stage for, the, you know, the next era of history. But 
you, you can't have the reaction if you don't have the revolution. Exactly, and, I, yeah. and, I, and I think both of those have to be baked in there. Yeah. And we, and you have, if, if, if history is for anything as a, as a person living your life, it is, it is, it is examples. It is symbols and moments that inform you, your own decisions of what to do, like what, what uh, you know, where the terrain for, for fighting for those, those notions of, of humanity uh, exist. And more than anything, the civil war for me is, is inspiring because you had a situation, a slave society in the South that, that until almost to almost the, the day before the war started was something that seemed absolutely uh, indelible was by that point had been fully uh, uh, asserted itself as, as the permanent state of affairs in a, in a, in a huge chunk of the country with aspirations to become the permanent state of affairs on the, on the, the rest of the continent. The price of slaves was at its height. Yeah. And within, within, uh, 10 years it's gone and it was done that was a, that was done by human effort that was people coming together to do it uh to do it as a political project by above and beyond anything else uh and that that reality i think needs to always be in people's mind because if that could happen and it did happen then human possibility is in every moment this is like the Civil War brings out by far the most optimistic Matt. One hundred percent. It's like that's the only time that I hear you talk in this way. Because like I keep maybe I mean, Bernie had it for a second, but even so, I don't think it even ever actually got that that deep. Well, it's because I end up having I, I get fixated on like the material like conditions that are generating these political contests, and and when you fixate on those, everything does at a certain level seem overdetermined, and and like everything is doomed. But. uh but the Civil War was a political struggle. It yeah. was not something that had to happen. There was no crisis in capitalism, in emergent capitalism, that was putting the North and South at some sort of fundamental material conflict with each other. They were hand-in-glove. Southern, Southern slave economy and the Northern industrial economy were a machine. Uh, but it was a machine that was organized through political structures that became that grew into fundamental conflict and that was an ideological conflict. Absolutely. And if that happens, if, if, if an ideological conflict can generate the forms of resistance and organization that we saw uh, it, to break apart this, this coalition of, of uh, political economies uh, and forge a new one, then, then, then that, that live wire runs through all of history. Oh, Salmon P chase. Where art thou? <laughs> well, I think we need you that, is as good a place as any to end this. Uh, this has been a great discussion, Matt. Matt Carp, thank Matt you Carp. so much thank for uh, for coming and talking Civil War with us. You, as you've mentioned, will have a forthcoming book <laughs> on the to- on the topic. TV yeah. uh, what, already named but not yet written. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, you know, Josh Giddings. You know, wh- where have you gone? You know. Uh, Nah, never mind. Never mind. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's called. I, I'm out of gas, but it's it's going to be called Millions of Abolitionists, based on that line from Marianne Shad Carey and the idea of this sort of people struggle against slavery. Excellent. Well, I have no idea what timeline that's on, but everybody stay on high alert. <laughs> Set your Google alerts now <laughs> for Millions of Abolitionists, uh, and you can find that book soon. And we will be back next week with another bonus episode, skipping about a, another hundred years into the future to talk about a uh, different kind of. Uh, political revolution one taking things off the uh, political plate rather than keeping them on yeah all right this has been hell presence bye bye everybody. bye